You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where I am the Lizard King, and I can do anything. You know the day destroys the night, night divides the day. Try to run, try to hide, break on through to the other side, break on through to the other side, break on through to the other side, yeah. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name's Sean Engel and I'm here to cover the Green Lantern comics, specifically the ones starting with the cover date June 1990 and ending with cover date November 2004, putting a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. Guy Gardner, again, not in the book, Kyle Rayner is. And I say the book because, again, like last week, I'm only going to be covering one book this week, but it's a good one, Green Lantern number 124. And it's kind of the end of an era, not only for the book, but also for me as well. You see, Green Lantern number 124 is technically Ron Mars' last book. I mean, there's another story that he wrote after this, but it has the feel of an inventory story. This is also the last book that I actually collected when the book was coming out, so from now on in, after this book, it's pretty much up in the air. I have no idea what's coming on to the book. I have no idea what writers Jay Ferber or Judd Winnick are going to be doing with the character. So, if this is your first time experiencing it, it's mine as well. But I'm looking forward to it as well. I'm also looking forward to covering the book today, which is the uh, wrap-up of Kyle's dealings with the controllers and effigy. It's a great story, and I can't wait to get to it. And I can't wait to get to your emails as well. All of these will be coming right after this podcast promo break. So stay tuned. I will be there in just a few minutes. ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a great adventure took place. I'm going to regret this. This is ridiculous. Only a laser sword fight. Star Tours announces the boarding of the Endor Express, non-stop star speeder service to the moon of Endor. All passengers, please prepare for immediate boarding. No! Cannot get your ship off. <laughs> Lando Calrissian is a positive role model in the realm of science fiction fans. Lando Calrissian. Star Wars Monthly Mondays. Available the first Monday of every month at 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com. We would be honored if you would join us. 
dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happening to you. You're changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us. I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. Or soon the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And now, mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You earthlings can't change the way I can. That means I'm the most powerful person on Earth. I've been expecting you, for I am the Thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more and the Phantom Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatans, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. You're just a muscular freak. Blind or Hulk. Stop! You must not enter the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain him to let him drained of all elemental life. So, speak Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witnessed the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. FFcast.libsyn.com Com. Hey Gene, we should do a podcast. Sounds like a great idea, Jeff. But what will we talk about? How about a superhero that we both love? Perfect. Something like Thor or Captain America? Uh, both great choices, but um, I think they're being covered by somebody else already. Wait, I've got it. What about the protector of the universe? Like Voltron? No, no, no. The guy with the jewelry that lets him create whatever he wants. Ah, Green Lantern, nice! Close. No, this guy has cosmic awareness. Captain Marvel? Almost. I mean, Quasar! Ah, Quasar. Who doesn't love a good Quasar? Tune in to the Quantum Cast, covering all things Quasar. Yes, that's right. You can find us at quantumbands.blogspot.com. And on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Yeah, that that didn't sound scripted at all, did it? And we're back. And as usual, it's time to start up with my favorite part of the show, getting to read your emails. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and we start out with a quick email from Mr. Luke Giaconetti. He writes in with the title of his email, addendum to the previous, which was his one where he talked about the previous email. Yeah, okay. Uh, his email says, while I agree with your assessment of GTR in general, when the heart rules the mind is still pretty boss. Okay. I emailed back to Luke saying that I like the concept of GTR, a big fan of Steve Howe and his work on Yes, but in general, the GTR album was SHT, if you know what I'm saying. Luke replied back to that and said, I'll take it one further. The Hunter is okay, but nothing great. So for me, it's just really the one song. 
Then he continues on saying, all right, celebrity deathmatch time. God, remember that show? Yes. Yes, I do, Luke. He says, battle of the failed 80s super bands. Uh-oh. GTR versus Blue Murder. <laughs> Man. When the heart rules the mind versus Jelly Roll. Uh, I smell a special edition of Long Play coming up. That's one you can talk Chris into. Um, I won't subject anyone to any more GTR than I already had. But thanks, Luke, for writing in. Guys, if you don't know what Luke does, he's over at the Two True Freaks website as well. His main show is Earth Destruction Directive, where he talks about Daikaiju and Tokusatsu, uh, Japanese giant monsters and science fiction shows. He talks. Uh, he has Gaiden episodes where he talks about Ultraman and Super Sentai type shows. It's a fun listen. You've got to check it out. Plus, he also helps uh, co-host the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror over at Two True Freaks, where we're probably by now going to be getting to our final episode of the Italian Horror Series, which is a pretty controversial one, the, uh, the movie Cannibal Holocaust. Plus, we're continuing on with Friday the 13th, and after we finish our Italian horror, we're going to be moving into one of my favorite horror directors, Don Coscarelli, and his Phantasm movies, so look forward to that. But thanks, Luke, for writing in. Always appreciated. Our next email comes from podcaster extraordinaire Mr. Tom Penrice, host of Pop Culture Affidavit, In Country, a non-podcast, and Taking Flight, a Robin and Nightwing podcast. And Tom writes in with the title of email saying, Late 1990s ads and Green Lantern Annual Number 3. He writes in, Sean, I'm happy to say that I'm almost caught up on just one of the guys and have enjoyed every episode. Well, thanks, Tom. I appreciate that. It's nice to hear that people are enjoying listening to me which is surprising. The late 1990s are so much different from what we think of when we talk about quote-unquote 90s comics, and I'm glad that you're taking the opportunity to show that to us. I've been reading some late 1990s comics myself, mostly Teen Titans comics, and I've noticed a definite shift in the ads from the ads I'm used to seeing in the books from the late 1980s. Gone are the hodgepodge ads and American comics hot book ads, my best Andrew Leyland there, and present are the very slick-looking magazine-type ads. Plus, the feel of ads has changed. I admit that the ads in the late 1980s geared towards kids and teenagers were often... dorky, in a way. Advertising a joystick in 1998, or 1989, was done by putting a kid in a, quote, cool haircut and, quote, cool sunglasses on a page. The same ad in 1999 would have a smirking kid who was too cool for anything and some hip slang written in wacky font that said something to make us believe that buying the product was extreme. It's almost as bad as Bob Haney's hip teen dialogue in the old 1960s Teen Titan comics. Yeah, I will admit the advertisements that we see in these late 90s comics, especially the ones that I've been covering recently, do have that sort of written by someone who doesn't know the dialogue or doesn't know how to speak the language of the youth way, very much like Bob Haney's very awkward hip speak of the 1960s. It's it's dialogue written by a marketing firm about how they think kids of this era speak, and it it does kind of come off as not really into what the era of children are into, if that makes any sense, it's it just feels out of place. It's it feels like it's written by a committee. So that's kind of the way that that the advertisements have been feeling recently. Continue on. Tom says you mentioned Sprite at one point, and it's actually interesting that you did. 
Back in 2000, there was an episode of Frontline called The Merchants of Cool that took an in-depth look at what was then the new tween youth market. I use air quotes over the microphone. And how companies were trying to cash in on that market and all of their sending power, spending power. Sprite was one of the companies they looked at because Soda had effectively tied themselves to hip-hop in, in a way that at the time was innovative. For instance, sponsoring an album release party. Makes sense. So they would be associated with that artist and therefore be considered cool. Apparently it was a, I'm sorry, apparently it was successful, much in the way that Mountain Dew aligned itself with extreme sports and future meth addicts. I wrote back to Tom and said that Mountain Dew should should market a blue Heisenberg Mountain Dew drink. Get on that. Blue Heisenberg Mountain Dew. It's delicious. It's extreme. People will drink it up. Continuing on, Tom says, I wound up using Merchants of Cool for a paper I was writing at the time, which is why I guess I remember it so well. I'm not sure it's easy to track down, but if you want to, I'd watch that as well as the follow-up episode from this year, Generation Like. Sorry to geek out about marketing there. It's what I did before I became a teacher, and I still find it fascinating. You know, Tom, whatever you want to geek out with is fine. I understand, you know... I get geeked out in science. When I watch shows like CSI or Criminal Minds and I see them investigating stuff and the science not really working out, I always get kind of irked. So it's fun to geek out with what you actually know. So no problem with that. Mini disc, Tom says, by the way, are a format that nobody except maybe my father-in-law bought. He had a mini disc player and was pretty faithful to them right up until Sony stopped manufacturing them. I'm pretty sure he still has the player and the mini disc, although he probably never listens to them because now he has an iPod. There you go. Then again, he still buys CDs, so for all I know, he's still playing those mini discs somewhere. <sighs> At least someone was. Now on to the actual comics. In Green Lantern Annual Number 3, you mentioned Iron was the weakness of the Nazified Green Lantern Corps. This has to be on purpose, because iron was hugely symbolic back in the early half of the 20th century in Germany, ever since the late 19th century when Otto von Bismarck united the country and gave his famous blood and iron speech. So perhaps the writer was being... Ironic? Oh, Tom. The punishment. The punishment. Anyway, he wraps up saying, Okay, that's enough out of me. Keep up the great work, Tom. He adds a PS, though. You mentioned that nobody played roller hockey. I did. In fact, I was a goalie. Well, unfortunately, no one here in Oklahoma played roller hockey. Not that I know of. In Oklahoma, you play football, or that's about it. So, Tom, thank you for writing in, and thank you for putting out such excellent shows. If you're not listening to in-country... Taking Flight, or Pop Culture Ref David, you're doing yourself a disservice. Go check any or all of these shows out. Tom is an excellent, excellent podcaster. But that finishes up for emails, so it's time to get into our one comic for tonight, Green Lantern number 124. Green Lantern number 124 was cover dated May 2000 and released on March 1st, to March 1st 2000, if I can get that out. Cover price was $1.99 US and 325 Canada, and the title was Control Freak. The writer was Ron Mars, penciler was Daryl Banks, inker was Andy Smith, colors and separations were by William Moose Bowman, letter was Chris Eliopoulos, assistant editor was Frank Berrios, and the editor was Bob Schreck. 
Our story opens with Jon Stewart telling a still-wounded Kyle Rayner to take it easy before he goes off half-cocked against the Controllers, the alien cousins of the Guardians of the Universe, who've been messing with Kyle's mind. Kyle says he can handle this himself, but Jon says he should let the JLA check him out first. Kyle relents, but mentions that maybe Jon should get checked out as well, since he's no longer confined to a wheelchair. Telling the controllers nice try, Kyle brings himself out of the dream state and asks the Malthusians why they're messing with his head. The controllers tell Kyle that he's no more than a nuisance to him, which prompts the Last Lantern to attack the Crimson Creatures. However, the controllers aren't pushovers, and they take Kyle down rather handedly. Some time has passed, and Kyle finds himself ringless, naked, and hooked to a series of sci-fi tubes and wires. Looking out into the alien warehouse, Kyle sees dozens of other beings undergoing the same strange procedure. Eventually, a controller approaches Kyle and tells him that their manipulations will make Kyle their tool. Of course, Kyle fights back and breaks free of the contraption and the controller's mind control. This causes, of course, the controllers to unleash the entirety of the FG core to take the lantern down. But Kyle uses the force to sense the location of his ring and force pull it to him. Powered up, Kyle delivers some consequences, copyright relatively yaky, 2014, all rights reserved, to Effigy and his merry bunch by taking out the gestation chambers, which are making more controller minions. Kyle also conjures up a construct core of his own to take down the baddies, and eventually he puts the controllers in their place, causing them to make a tactical retreat. Kyle warns them that the next time they meet, they might not be up against just one Green Lantern, but an entire core. And with the crisis averted, Kyle heads off into space, wondering where he will go from here. The End As I said in the intro to the show, for some reason, this seems like the end of an era. And technically, from my standpoint, it was. This was the last issue of this series that I picked up in its original run. I just had my first child. Well, my wife had my first child. I had a little bit to do with that. About five months ago, when this was published, and I was pretty caught up in being the whole good, mature dad thing. So I figured that collecting comics would have to take a back seat to being a parent, and this was the last issue of Green Lantern that I bought when it came out. And really... Up until about 2005, when I heard about the Jeff Johns reboot of Hal Jordan as Green Lantern, I dropped out of reading comics, period. And it really kind of suppressed my geekiness because I felt that I needed to be a quote-unquote mature adult, and reading and collecting comics didn't mix with that. Rebirth at the time didn't capture my imagination like it did with many other readers, so I didn't follow the ongoing. It wasn't really until I started to listen to podcasts, views from the long box, tutu freaks, from crisis to crisis, etc., that I realized that there are people out there that were my age and with my taste, so I finally felt comfortable to, again, quote-unquote, let my freak flag fly. So from now on, all of these books and stories are brand new to me. But from what I can see in checking the upcoming issues on Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, a website that all of you should know about and check out, this is nearing the end of Ron Mars' run on the book as well. He did an amazing job in creating this character, and now I can't wait to see where things go with other writers behind the wheel. But yeah, it seems like a 
end of an era for me and kind of an end of an era for Ron Mars as a writer as well. So it'll be interesting to see how the books go from here. But I'm more than excited to check them out. But let's go ahead and talk about this book a little bit more. We'll start, of course, with the cover. And, well, um, I have to say, as I slowly and dramatically put my uh, glasses on, that this is certainly an eye-catching cover. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I won't do that again. That was kind of foolish. I apologize. But hopefully you won't get fooled again. Sorry, sorry, my bad. I need to stop doing that. I'm going to get sued by the Who. That would be awful. Moving into the book, page one. Sadly, the art has kind of taken a step backwards for this issue, with John's face looking very flat and kind of bland. Uh, last issue with Greg Adams doing the art, or doing the inking for Terrell Banks, the artwork was really amazing, but Andy Smith doesn't seem to have the same talent. Uh, it just doesn't complement Banks' work here, so a uh, kind of a step back in art-wise. Page three, Kyle's finally catching on to how this entire illusion thing works. There are sudden little things wrong with these implanted memories or illusions or whatever you want to call them, that if he's able to catch them, he's able to bring himself out of it. And the fact that he sees that Jon Stewart is walking is an indication of, yeah, this isn't reality and something weird is going on. So I, I like that Kyle's finally figured out what's going on and he's more incapable of getting past the controller's machinations. Moving on in the book, up to page 8, we get Kyle connected to these weird sort of technological cyber tubules. And this is a little something for the ladies, I guess, because, yeah, he's completely stripped of all of his clothes and has uh, carefully placed mechanical devices to cover up his little Rainer, I guess. So, yeah, there, there you go. But uh, you can imagine what's down there, ladies, I guess if you're listening or reading this, so, yeah. Page 10, I found it kind of interesting here that there's sort of an energy cloud that surrounds the controllers, which is kind of similar to the energy that surrounds Kyle when he's flying through space as Green Lantern. But that energy color is kind of yellow. It could be a little orange if you wanted to consider it, but I like the idea that they might be tapping into the emotional spectrum prior to it actually being invented, and channeling fear as their power. I know this is probably something that really wasn't on anyone's mind, and the idea of the emotional spectrum was specifically Jeff Johns, but looking at it from our vantage point of the 2014, it is kind of interesting to see if that might have been in someone's mindset, that they're using that sort of yellow energy, the controllers are using that sort of yellow energy to fuel their power. Then page 13, panel 4, uh, the artwork on this panel, it's just these FG Corman, they look really awful. Just very muddy and indistinct. The inking is just very uncomplimentary to Banks' pencils. It's just a bad panel, and it's it's sorry that it makes me feel bad that the art is so inconsistent in this book. And then on page 14, we get a bit more wonkiness, and it's not that the Lanterns haven't been able to control the ring from afar. I mean, we saw that early on in the Green Lantern run where Hal 
used his willpower to keep these rednecks from using his stolen ring as, you know, to make constructs to fight against him. We've seen that happen before, but this is almost Star Wars Jedi trick as Kyle pulls out, holds out his hand in front of him in a kind of force pull gesture to bring his ring toward him. It's just, it's kind of goofy and it lacks subtlety. It, 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 it's something that I know could happen, but it just feels out of place in the book. However, all my complaints and nitpicking have to go away when I turn to page 18 and see this, again, near poster-worthy splash page of Kyle and Jenny and the rest of this imaginary core behind him. And Kyle's ringing up all these constructs, and it's, it's really nice. It's sad that in the book we get such inconsistency in the art, and I don't know whether it's rush jobs or too many hands working on it supposedly it's only andy smith doing the inking but you know in some panels it's good and some panels it's not and that's what we've seen a lot in these green lantern books and i don't know why there's not just that same consistency and it may just be the varying different inkers that daryl banks has had to go through in in this book when it started out with just banks and tangal the artwork is superlative now that they kind of rotated through a bunch of guest inkers, well, not really guest inkers, but really haven't had a specific inker that's worked well with Banks, the art's been, like I've said, very inconsistent. Page 19, panel 2. I'm going to have to see if I can get a scan of this and show Luke, Jack, and Eddie this. I'm pretty certain he's loved this. He'd love this because there's an Effigy Corps member here with a head that's shaped like Geryon, the uh, knife-headed monster that Gamera fought in, of course, Gamera versus Geryon. And I, first of all, I just love that character, and I love that movie, especially because it's got the two little kids who run around on the, who get lost on the sort of weird flying saucer and are about to get their brains eaten by the two hot alien chicks. I mean, it's a goofy movie, and Geryon's a goofy monster. But to know that there's an Effigy core member that, looks like Geryon, is even better. But then, wrapping the comic up on pages 21 and 22, uh, after the defeat of the Controllers, Kyle has come to a turning point, and maybe there needs to be a core once again, and maybe he's ready to start at this time. If this technically is the end of Ron Mars's run, in less than 75 issues, he's taken a very selfish, cocksure, 20-something child of the 90s, and turned him into a true hero. And maybe this is a statement about the change into the new decade. Uh, maybe it's a statement about a move away from the sort of selfishness of the 90s to the more altruistic feel of the 2000s. Maybe it is, but I'm not that great at reading subtext into my funny book, so I'm not going to take it for granted here. But... That ends up the comic book, except for one little thing that we have to do, take a look at some of the advertisements in it. And this time out, it looks like we've got a little bit of a different advertisement. This one is kind of new. It's the Multipath Adventures of Superman. You'll experience a new state-of-the-art interactive technology that allows you to control the storyline. And it's basically a computer program version of those choose-your-own-adventure books. Uh, the Superman... He's not bad. He looks 
like PlayStation two era graphics, which for the time is pretty good. Um, they also have one for Marsh Marvin, the Martian and ask Dr. Science. And all of these can be found at entertaindom.com, a time Warner entertainment company. So I have no idea. I'm going to do a quick internet check to see if this stuff is still up. Well, a quick search of the internet shows that 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 link basically takes you to the Warner Brothers site, and doing a Google search for the multipath adventures of Superman leads you to a blank page, which really doesn't get you anything. I guess it was a computer game where you could run it on Windows and play it and be Superman, or have Superman have choose-your-own-adventure games. That's kind of neat, though. A few more pages in, you get another NextPlanetOver.com ad. Uh, this one's a little different than the previous ones. That shows a basically a row of comic, uh, basically a lineup of uh, not comic boxes, but comics in bags and boards, you know, extending on into infinity. It's it's a different ad, but yes, again, people trying to market the internet and market their websites or market their stores on the internet and not quite getting it as as of yet. After that, on the next page, we can add for Corn Nuts with their sponsor or their spokes thing, Winky the Crow, which is a uh, one-eyed anthropomorphic animated crow who's standing on the uh, face of a passed-out person holding a uh, bag of corn nuts. Winky calls on his kung fu skills to disarm a crazed fan. So I guess Winky, the one-eyed crow, beat up this poor guy who was wearing glasses in order to defend his corn nuts. Thanks, advertising. The next ad is for the Game Boy Color game, Bionic Commando. It says includes a rocket launcher, laser, assault rifle, and yes, a flamethrower. And it has the uh, a very bright green Game Boy Color with uh, flame shooting out of the back of it, which I think would be a design flaw and might have to be recalled, but hey... If you want to play Bionic Commando and don't mind your Game Boy Color going up in flames, this is the game for you. A few more pages in, we get another very minimalist ad with a red background and some red Powerade on there, and just a bottle of Powerade with some text underneath it saying, Powerade, extinguish thirst, and power up with energy-yielding carbs, because we all know that carbs are good for you. Now available in Infrared Freeze, which... I guess if it was infrared, we wouldn't be able to see what color it is, but that, I guess, doesn't make sense to marketing executives, so it has to be red. Weird. Then the next page is an ad for what looks to be a really awful game called Jackie Chan Stuntmaster, where you can use classic Jackie Chan weapons, including chairs, brooms, and more. Tons of enemies and high-powered bosses to kick around. Motion-captured animations of the real Jackie Chan, not the fake Jackie Chan, which is obviously 
portrayed on this advertisement. Yeah. Again, this is probably pretty cutting edge for the time. I mean, we're used to nowadays, you know, CGI rendered characters that look uh, incredibly amazing and lifelike. And I guess this isn't bad for the PlayStation era. A significant step up from the Nintendo or the side-scrolling Sega Genesis type game. So there you go. And then for some reason, we get another Three Musketeers ad with uh, the Three Musketeers, those weird animated type characters, driving a tricked-out semi-truck, fighting against a guy in a hover drill that looks like he's an out-reject from Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. I don't think Alexandre Dumas had any of this in mind when he was writing these characters. And then to finally make me happy, returning this March, Family Guy, in, in an advertisement that's supposed to be, I guess, very reminiscent of The Sopranos, which is a show that was significantly better than Family Guy, in my humble opinion. But your your mileage may vary. On the next page, we get basically another DC Direct sculpture. This one is of Superboy, and it's the... Uh, pre-Connor Kent Superboy, the leather jacket and uh, the, the the 90s Superboy. His haircut's styled a bit better. He doesn't have the sort of goofy, almost Guy Gardner bowl cut, but it looks like a good maquette. They've also got one for uh, Impulse and uh, the Tim Drake Robin as well, but this one they actually give a price on, and you can pick it up at your local comic book shop, sculpted by William Paquette and based on the designs of Tony Nock. It's 175 bucks, or 279 in Canada. So, Scott Davis, you would have to pay out the wazoo for this if you bought this at the time. Still, I guess limited. I guess there was a limited number of them, so kind of cool. I mean, it's a good sculpt, but 175 dollars. Wow. I guess people bought them though, but this, this I guess is what they're marketing more these these specialty items rather than. You know, the hot comics, it's it's the big ticket items that they're advertising these comics now instead of, you know, back-issue comics. There's a uh, DC subscription ad here with the uh, Magnificent Seven Justice League. I think this might be nearing the end of the uh, Morrison run on the, the book. I can't be certain, but it doesn't look like the uh, typical Morrison, Porter, and Dell-drawn uh, Justice League even though it's those characters, so, hmm. But it's advertisements for Martian Manhunter, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Batman, Superman, The Flash, Green Lantern, or JLA books, so. And you can buy them as a gift for yourself or a friend, so, interesting. The back inside cover is another ad for, uh, against the, or for the Partnership for Drug-Free America, which has the uh, film reel on the side with the person doing an incredibly high-flying skate maneuver thing, and I guess the person sitting down saying that this is my idea of getting high, and yeah, so don't do drugs, kids. And the back outside cover is an advertisement for Psycomic again, with the creepy, underaged, seductively posed, Catholic, schoolgirl, skirt-wearing girl. Yeah, it makes me feel uncomfortable. But that does it for this issue, and that does it for this show. 
Next time, we're going to be covering, obviously, Greenland number 125. Plus, we're also going to start in at looking at some of the 80-page giants from this time. Essentially, they were storehouses for, well, pretty much inventory stories. However, this first 80-page giant is going to be kind of special because it's got a story penned by Bo Smith, penciled by Mitch Bird, and is about one Guy Gardner. And, if I can work things out, I might actually have someone who likes to talk about Guy Gardner as a guest on the show. But you'll have to wait until next Friday to hear about that. And I hope you'll be back for it. Because I will. Because I've still got about, oh, 60 more issues to cover in this. But I'm looking forward to all of them, and I'm hoping you're looking forward to them too. So, we'll catch you next time on another episode of Just One of the Guys. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Greenland podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Engel. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed as well as scan the covers and whatever else I feel like putting on look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two, and you can subscribe to the show there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Devon's Court contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greek Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was The Doors with their song Break On Through to the Other Side, off their album The Doors. Now, I'll freely admit I'm not the biggest Doors or Jim Morrison fan out there, but I'm certain there's people who are, and I'm certain there's people who would love to get this song. And of course, the best way to get it is at Amazon.com, where you can either buy the CD, buy the MP3, or buy the MP3 album. Of course, the best way to get to Amazon.com is by using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. Every time you go to 2TrueFreaks.com and click the link in the upper left-hand corner of the page, you'll be transported to Amazon.com where you could buy Doors music, where you could buy Beatles music, where you could buy any number of songs, and all for ridiculously low prices. Plus, every time you use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com, a little bit of the money that you use in buying whatever at Amazon.com goes back to the Two True Freaks website. It doesn't cost you anything at all extra, and it really helps the website out. So anytime you plan on making a purchase from Amazon.com, make sure you use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com.